Hello, friend. Today, Gemma was part of a press conference in Maryland. Along with Survivor Donna and SNAP, the Survivor's Network of Those Abused by Priests. Here, take a listen. We're here today to discuss the need for transparency and access to the Maryland Attorney General's report about sexual abuses conducted by priests in the Baltimore Archdiocese. Following brief introductions of our team and our clients today, Barbara Hart, We'll discuss the goals we hope to achieve, and we will then ask our client survivors and advocates to talk for a few minutes each. After that, we'll have a question and answer period, and then let you get on your way. <clears throat> First, Barbara Hart is the head of Grant Eisenhofer's Civil Rights Group and represents sexual abuse survivors in litigation and before legislators. Suzanne Sangri is senior counsel at Grant and Eisenhofer and is a resident of Baltimore City. In a former life, Suzanne worked for the City of Baltimore Department of Law for 12 years. Beth Graham is also a Baltimore resident, leads the complex litigation department at Grant Eisenhofer out of its Wilmington office, litigating complex and coordinated cases nationally. A significant portion of Beth's practice involves representing survivors of sexual assault and retaliation claims. Kate Kerner, my law partner, concentrates her practice in representing survivors of sexual and emotional abuse by people and entities in positions of power over their victims, representing clients both here in Maryland and nationwide. David Lorenz serves as the Maryland Director of the Nonprofit Corporation Survivors Network of Those Sexually Abused by Priests, SNAP. SNAP is the most active support group nationally and internationally for women and men wounded by religious and institutional guardians. Gemma Hoskins <clears throat> was a student at Baltimore's Archbishop Keogh High School, where the abuse was rampant, and where she was inspired by the late Sister Kathy Sesnick to become a teacher. Because of Kathy's influence, Gemma had the honor of being the 1992 Maryland Teacher of the Year. Gemma is the central investigative figure in The Keepers, a Netflix documentary about the murder and cover-up of Sister Sesnick's death in 1969, and is a published author on her life experiences. And finally, Donna Vandenbush similarly is a survivor of the horrors of Archbishop Keogh. Featured in The Keepers, Donna believes that the healing process begins with openness and transparency of all proceedings, and she shared her story publicly in the pages of the Baltimore Sun. <clears throat> As all of you here are now aware, the Maryland Attorney General conducted a massive investigation spanning some four years on sexual abuse crimes committed by clergy members in the Archdiocese of Baltimore. This investigation, in which our clients cooperated, culminated in a 456-page report. The report is what we are here to address today. Inspired by the Netflix documentary, The Keepers, the Maryland Attorney General embarked on this in-depth review of priests and other clergy in Baltimore who either committed heinous crime of abuse or shielded sexual predators such that they could be moved from parish the parish. Survivors of these crimes, including Donna, 
and others, cooperated with the AG and recounted the horrors of their path. As the release of the 456-page investigation has been considered by the courts, these brave individuals, together with their client advocates, now seek transparency. They want the report released for themselves and all survivors as they're part of their quest, not only for accountability, but for some monochrom of healing. The release of the report validates their story and was minimizes their claim. Only when this is out in the open can the healing truly begin. The Facebook group that Gemma and others started as a place for Keo alumni to discuss the abuse and Sister Kathy Sisnick's unsolved death has grown to more than 145,000 members. This is a testament to not only the breadth of the problem, but also the need for survivors to seek, to seek answers and to find solidarity. We anticipate that the report will contain new details about the events at Archbishop Keogh High School in the late 60s and 70s. The Attorney General's office itself has asked the courts to allow the release of the grand jury investigation into the Archdiocese of Baltimore. However, on November 21st, an anonymous group of people who are named in the report but not accused of abuse filed a request that the AG's investigation not be released. Our clients take issue with that and seek to oppose it. To that end, we will be filing our own papers in court today. State law requires that a judge approve the release of grand jury material. In general terms, our filing today seeks to assure the transparency of the report. Our clients want a voice in that discussion. This past Friday, the Baltimore City Circuit Court judge ordered the case sealed, meaning Hearings and motions about releasing the report will not be made public. Accordingly, we will speak about our anticipated filing in general terms only, but our request that our clients have a voice in this process is the essence of what we are here to advocate today. In its motion to release the report, the Maryland AG's office wrote, and I quote, because healing is not possible without accountability, and accountability is not possible without transparency, the state moved this court for permission to disclose certain information obtained via grand jury subpoena so that the Attorney General 456-page report on clergy abuse in Maryland may be made public, unquote. Those words could not be more accurate, like the AG, survivors, their families, and their advocates understand it. The Maryland Crime Victims Resource Center, on behalf of two survivors, has also filed a motion asking for the full disclosure of the report with no redaction. On behalf of our clients, we support the request of the Maryland AG and the Maryland Crime Victims Resource Center. And now I'll ask Barbara Hart, the head of Grant and Eisenhower's Civil Rights Group, to speak for a few moments about our goals. Okay. Thank you, Rob. Thank you for hosting us here today. Hello. Thank you for being in attendance. And I echo Rob's sentiment in regard to praising the press coverage of this. It's important that we all amplify the balance that we're seeking in both privacy concerns, the legitimate concerns of the grand jury proceedings, and the needs of survivors. And we appreciate the press drawing attention and attending today. 
It's a tremendous privilege for me to be shoulder to shoulder with our clients, longtime advocates for survivors, some themselves survivors. Gemma, David, Michelle, and Donna, thank you for your work. Thank you for your courage. Thank you for advocating for transparency and accountability. From my work in advocating for survivors for the period of time since the statute of limitations was lifted in New York State and in other states where it's been lifted, I have found that for my clients, for survivors, issues related to secrets, cover-ups, and lack of accountability are profoundly important to this group of trauma survivors. These people were robbed of all sense of who to trust when they were very young children. The issue of secrecy that has reared its head in this situation, both vis-a-vis -vis the proceedings and regarding the report, has a lot of concerns for this population. My work in this area came about after decades of leading complex financial litigation when I was approached by friends and family related to abuse that some of them had suffered unbeknownst to me. Sadly, suicide is the ultimate price for some who cannot call themselves survivors. Decades of carrying the trauma leads to fatigue and stress, constantly on guard, compartmentalizing what happened to them as children in order to go along in life. The stories that I have heard are many. One of them that echoes in my head is the call from the man who was weeping, telling me how he had never told his late wife. He was in his 70s. She had died years before, and I was the first person he would ever tell. These kinds of stories are not uncommon amongst childhood sexual abuse survivors. It is something that they often keep locked down. They believe they must carry shame for something that, of course, was completely beyond their control. Everything we do in relation to these proceedings and these investigations and in our way of healing our society in the face of this scandal must be informed by understanding the nature of this trauma. It's a trauma that shatters trust. It's a trauma that disorients the child. Often they go to people that they love, people that they believe they were brought up to revere and look to, and they complain or of confusion as to what's happened to them, and they are disbelieved. They are told to be quiet. They are denied their truth. And they are children defenseless in this situation. We need to let that seep into the way in which we approach these proceedings and in the way in which we approach the release of the grand jury report. Indeed, in other states, before lifting the statute of limitations, the courts have run seminars for the judges in order to allow them to do trauma-informed presiding over the proceedings in allowing them to come to understand what is unique about childhood sexual abuse survivors and the way in which they may present their trauma or the way in which it would inform us understanding why these reports from decades ago need to be released publicly in order to regain trust 
or why the statute of limitations must be lifted in order to address a secret that has been buried for decades. We encourage the court to consider the life experiences of these survivors from their childhood. Faced with denials and accusations, shamed themselves, betrayed by their faith and by the faith that they would be alienating their families from, they do not know who to trust. We implore the court and all of us to try to bring compassion to this process and strike a balance so that we can better assure that we will give them comfort and have the sense of being believed and being in a safe space to tell what happened to them. Our society should no longer tolerate this being in darkness and this being kept a secret. Whose interests are served by such a process? A balance can be struck to assure that the ceiling is not perceived or facilitating a cover-up. The survivor's day to be heard is soon to come, and the facts will see daylight. Whatever balance between privacy, grand jury integrity, and the court's prerogative should be countered by the survivor's interests, and that balance must be sought. The survivor's decade-long struggle to be heard is one of tremendous courage, They've worked to conform the law to their, to the heinous crime that robbed them of their childhood and that they've carried for decades through their lives. We need to conform the law and the process to this experience that's unique to them. And we need to consider how we can best address the unique experience that they've suffered. It is manifestly unjust that the identified persons in the report be able to keep their identities secret. It is unjust that they have the report as pressing counts, accounts inform us and that the survivors themselves are not permitted to see it. It is also manifestly unjust for the archdiocese to be making statements, yet the advocates are to be both deprived of the information and potentially gagged in commenting upon the proceedings. A detective came and knocked on the door, and I said, is it Renee? And he just gave me that solemn look. It was the worst day ever. The Proof Podcast is back with a new case and a new season. 23 years ago, 18-year-old Renee Ramos went missing. Her body was later found in an empty Home Depot building on the edge of town. I don't think that they arrested the right people. It's about time somebody's trying to do something. She had a black eye about two weeks before she was murdered. They are involved. They definitely had her body and her backpack. You know people are going to judge you, right? Of course. They're judging me now. They've been judging me damn near my whole life. You can listen now to season two of Proof, wherever you get your podcasts. And follow along with us as we reinvestigate the murder at the warehouse. I have to ask, did you kill Renee? As we deep dive into these chilling tales, we all need a moment of escape, a way to unwind without the shadow of the night creeping in. Here's where Recess Mood comes in. Crafted with real fruit and infused with mood-lifting magnesium and stress-balancing aptogens, 
Recess Mood is your guilt-free retreat. With just 20 calories, no added sugar, it's not just a sparkling water. It's a sanctuary and a can. Imagine unwinding during a gripping episode of Foul Play with a can of strawberry rose, or my favorite, raspberry lemon. Letting the stress melt away without the aftermath of alcohol. It's my little secret to staying balanced in the chaos of a busy life. You deserve a healthier way to unwind, to recharge, and to prepare for the next journey into the unknown with foul play. And for the devoted foul play listeners, you deserve a healthier way to unwind. Head to takearecess.com slash Shane to get 15% off Recess Mood your go-to alcohol replacement. We appreciate all of you being in attendance today. We are looking forward to allowing our guests and our clients to be heard and as part of this process. And to that end, I now invite you to speak and take the choice. My name is David Lorenz, and I'm the Maryland Director of the This is the Survivors Network of those abused by Korea. This isn't my mutual statement that I think. I want to take you on a short, generalized, experiential journey of what it's like for a child to be sexually adopted by a clergyman. The world for a child who is 4, 10, or 16 is innocent and often filled with wonderment and thought. You have implicit trust in your family, your friends, and especially your parents. And when those people review a priest or a clergyman, that trust is transferred to that priest and even amplified. Sexual assault, the rape of that child is severely damaging physically, spiritually, and psychologically. And that bond of trust is not just broken with the priest, it's also broken with the family and the friends and the parents who put trust in that priest. The child grows and the, the world went from a place of wonderment to the place of danger. And as a child grows, those fears and sense of betrayal creep into every aspect of their lives. They often turn to drug and alcohol and risky behavior. And sometimes that leads to suicide and sometimes death by overdose, accidental death by overdose. At some point during their growth, because of all of you, they come to realize that these priests didn't act alone. They were enabled and protected by the institution. The young adult's sense of betrayal and lack of trust broadens to even a larger group. It's now just not the priest, not just the family. It is the world. They fall into despair, and they believe that there can be no justice. And when circumstances work against them, victim, this victim has random acts, which occurs on a victim. You just have a bad day. That victim internalizes it, and they feel even more alone and more isolated. They have learned the world is simply not just. The Attorney General of Maryland launched an investigation into this coordinated criminal activity. And finally, the victims start to feel that justice may actually they tentatively reveal what has happened to them to a complete stranger. I want each of you to imagine your deepest, darkest, most intimate secret, one that you're completely ashamed of, and then having to go to tell that to a stranger because that's the right thing to do. That's what victims have to go through. 
You do it because other victims have told you to go do it. And you're believing that maybe, maybe the attorney general will bring some judgment. And you wait four long years. Every month you hope that maybe this is the month that the report will come out. And finally, you read that the attorney general has completed the report and some of the details being reported validate your experience. And perhaps you believe that the world has some modicum of justice and that begins to grow in you, inside you. Then suddenly and inexplicably, that same institution that enabled the priest attempts to stop the relief of that report in the most underhanded and devious ways. All during this time, the same institution stands up at Sunday bully pulpits and makes proclamations of how transparent they are, how they aid victims, and how they treat them. They claim to follow the gospel of Jesus Christ, but they turn their backs on the lepers of the dead, lepers that they infected. In my opinion, there can be no lower moral stance than the one being taken by the Diocese of Baltimore. What would justice look like? It would look like the church taking total and complete responsibility for their crimes. They simply don't do this. Their offers of financial support for health problems come with significant strain and limitation. The bishop claims that he will meet with any veteran in his office with all the clerical trappings on this flight around him. These people are afraid of those clerical trappings. How is this empathy? The bishop should be standing outside the residence of each victim, begging to let him apologize to them. What organization do you know that says, yeah, we committed a crime, we raped your kid, you can come to our office and we will apologize. There is no other organization that I can think of. And I'm ashamed for the Diocese of Baltimore and for all the Catholics in it. Thank you all for being here. And regardless of what media venue you represent, I'm going to assure you, I know people, right? So I'm going to assure you that this press conference will go viral on all seven continents by midnight. Okay. I'm here today because I am an advocate for survivors of sexual abuse. You already know I have a big voice and I am honored today to use that voice, especially that for those who have not yet found their own. For the last four years, I have had the honor to facilitate the contact between the Attorney General's criminal investigator and those individuals whose childhoods were stolen by clergy assigned to the Archdiocese of Baltimore. Most of the individuals who contacted me were terrified. With the criminal investigator, Richard Wolf we developed a process whereby I would loop them into an introduction with him and be part of an email. Once the contact was made with Richard, he would take over from there. He met with survivors by phone, virtually on Zoom, at Panera Restaurant. He had survivors come to his office if that was convenient. He also traveled hours in and out of Maryland to talk to survivors of clergy abuse whose abuse happened in the Archdiocese of Baltimore. Richard did his job, and he did it well. We all put a lot of pressure on him. He was very gracious with us, 
what we thought was an intentional stall was him doing his job thoroughly and comprehensively with ultimate confidentiality. Now the now those brave people who, in spite of their fear, put their names and faces to their stories, they are faced with the reality that in the eyes of the archdiocese, they are once again less important than their perpetrators. Individuals were named by those survivors who reported to the attorney general, not only as abusers, but those who were complicit in the abuse, who turned away, remained silent, destroyed records, or who handed a 13-year-old teenage girl a damn hall pass to go to see the devil in the chaplain's office. Now those cowards are being represented by lawyers hired by the archbishop. Who's paying the legal fees for the survivors? I'm going to ask you to think about that. Those who were named, excuse me, my lesson plan, I'm a teacher. The uh, first diocese in the United States is now responsible for almost 100 years of clergy abuse. But for the first time in history, the world has come together in agreement that must that we must stop this insanity. There's been no event in history where more people have agreed on the same thing. Not 9-11, not the Kennedy assassination, and for Pete's sake, not even global warming. So right now, there are hundreds of thousands of people waiting for me to post that this doc, that this press conference is going to be available for them to watch. The archdiocese never bargained on the hundreds of thousands of world citizens who viewed the keepers in 125 countries in 25 languages. You would not believe the number of survivors who came forward from every corner of the globe. We are not a work of fiction, as the archdiocese would like you to believe. We are tribe of truth-tellers and warriors for justice. I'd like to conclude my remarks by addressing William Laurie directly. You could have been a hero by exposing all the wrongdoings by clergy pedophiles who were assigned to the Archdiocese of Baltimore. You could have been a hero by addressing their friends, some in very high places, read between the lines, and often in very low places that neither you or I would step foot in. But instead, you turned away. You chose to fall silent, and you chose to protect your criminals. But the mighty army I represent here today is relentless. We will not go away, sit down, or shut up. And most of us believe, sir, that you need to resign. Thank you. Thank you, gentlemen. Appreciate the comments. Don? I don't really have a statement to say, but I come today with my friends who died because of secrets 
from the diocese, from secrets from the priests and the abusers. And I was them to sit. That's all. Is that any of you have questions? Or, or I just want to be clear that we got a lot of things out of the agency report. And then you have you know, another ruling that should be sealed. And then Mark Johnson says we don't have a problem with his saying they really get the hired to um, lawyers. So, what is it that you all are asking for today as a new court filing? We'll be filing a motion to intervene so that we'll become parties to the proceedings. And then once granted standing within the proceedings, we are going to seek to have the report released. We want public disclosure of the report. What does that entail? That the public would get to see all of the materials within the report. You so you all would get copies of it. It would be for public purview. When you say we are filing the motion, everyone assembles here. So the advocacy groups and the actual clients have retained us, and we will be filing at Chambers today papers in support of the public release. First, we have to file this lawyer stuff, but it's a motion for intervention so that we are before the court. And then once before the court, if the court grants the intervention, we are then saying, based on the vested interests of the group of clients we represent, we seek full disclosure for reasons similar to those we've set forth here. But given the gag order that the court has issued, we will not be publicly releasing our papers. Okay, it's separate from what between what we filed, but the same kind of motion to intervene? Yes. And why are you doing it separately? We were retained by our clients, and we believe that the more voices, the more strength. We know we're stronger together. We have Snap has retained us, and Donna has retained us, and Gemma has retained us, and Michelle Snap has retained us. So, the individual in one and an organization who are standing up and filing this motion. That is not the totality of people that we are consulting with, but for today's purposes, those are the people who are standing behind this motion. The Catholic Church, they say publicly that they're not going to block releases of the court and they're paying fees of these anonymous folks. Do you feel like it's an uphill battle finding the church still in this endeavor as far as the transparency issue, no matter what you do, uh, as far as the, in legal sense, to get this done, that maybe you're fighting something, uh, an unwinnable battle? Do you feel that at times? No, we don't fight, feel that we're fighting an unwinnable battle. We're fighting a long battle, but it is not unwinnable. And the characterization of what you just described in relation to the church taking a public position where it's leaning into its compassionate posture and the teachings that it espoused that many of us were raised with is definitely jarring when you experience how it is to litigate against the church in individual cases or in regard to getting the statute of limitations lifted within the legislatures. We know many children cannot come to terms with speaking their truth about what they experience 
for decades. The law needs to recognize that truth. And our statute of limitations, when you go to law school, you're taught statute of limitations is about certainty and that entities can move on. So you put a time limit on things so defendants can move on. We need to strike a different balance in the reality that survivors take a long time to come to terms often with speaking about this. 50s, 60s, and 70s, and older. I have clients who have never told anyone, and it's horrific what they've carried. So the contrast between the public position and the reality of what the church often does is stark when you experience it. The reconciliation programs are an effort to keep things cordial and quiet, often. The people who are anonymous, the people who are made anonymous, and not be named in a report, what would be the purpose of that if they're not accused of being sexually? We could only speculate, given the fact that we don't know their identities. But that's a concern, right? That's not the world in which we live. We don't want to throw out theories about. What I was trying to suggest is that if you're a survivor of childhood sexual abuse and it's been in the shadows for decades, you have a basic distrust for secrecy and darkness. And we, in the words of Justice Brand, sunshine is the greatest disinfectant. And did I butcher it? I said it better. Oh, okay. (laughs) There you go. In any event, it could be that they facilitated, it could be they observed It could be that it's a survivor who does not want to be identified. We don't know. And we respect that some survivors won't want to be identified. We're talking about striking a balance, a balance that recognizes that the survivors distrust secrets. So this may, you all are just adding to the platform to release is document public. Just as your coverage of this issue amplifies the need for transparency, so does our filing. And if I could just add to that, the Attorney General's motion, as reported in the press, seeks to disclose its report redacting the 13 names of the newly named church official who are identical abuse in the Attorney General report. And so those names are redacted from what the Attorney General seeks to disclose to the public. And we support the Attorney General in its motion to disclose with those redactions. And I would just note, speaking on that theme of the hypocrisy of the position that Archbishop Lori has taken in statements to the press, he says he's, the archdiocese is paying for lawyers for some or all of these 13 because they have been named, but they are not accused of sexual abuse. The attorney general's motion, as reported in the press, states that they have been named as perpetrators of sexual abuse. Could I also address the question that you had about the anonymous group? Just from my personal experience and talking to survivors, 
who they think I'm like doctor, lawyer, everything, and I'm not. I just know where to send them, right? So they get in touch with me. Their stories included many people who were complicit or who facilitated the abuse for or with or about a perpetrator. I've talked to some of my friends and we said we could spend the next two hours naming all those people. It's not going to be a surprise to me who they are. My first reaction was, since they know who they are now, they probably headed on down to the airport and they're in the Caribbean or they've gone somewhere. They're not going to hang around and wait. Huge number, like lots and lots of people who knew about this and who facilitated or observed. Could it be the alleged enablers that are seeking to maintain their privacy? And does it concern you at all that they wouldn't have had their day in court, so to speak, to defend themselves? It could be. We don't know because the filings are secret. And so we don't know what their purpose is. But they have not their what the AG seeks to disclose in its report is not their names. They have not been exonerated. They have been named as perpetrators. And we have also asked in our into enablers. I'm sorry. Yeah, enablers can be accessories to crimes. And so they might be indictable as well. And we hope that we are asking the court also to refer the AG report back to the standing grand jury to investigate and make recommendations about what indictment should issue. So there's no statute of limitations with that? That remains to be seen. We haven't seen a report, so we can't make that kind of analysis at this point. But that's something that the standing grand jury or the incoming attorney general or the incoming city state's attorney is certainly well qualified to analyze. And we hope that indictments will issue. So who would fill in on the state's report? No, but our understanding is that the attorney general's office, the court, and the archdiocese of Baltimore and apparently these 13 anonymous, some of whom have are represented by Greg Bernstein and William Murphy and have filed a motion, a sealed motion. They at least know enough about the report to know that they are implicated in it so that they have filed a motion. We don't know if they've actually seen the report itself. Yes, we agree. The juxtaposition of them having access to it and the survivors not. If I'm reading your face correctly, it's deeply troubling. So that is what we are. I mean, how <laughs> you're asking us? That, that's that's precisely the question that we're asking the court to address. And it's there are doctors and the thirteen people who want to remain anonymous can see it. Correct. But the victims cannot see it. That is correct. Exactly. It doesn't make any sense at all. So So you're giving the people, so they're giving the people who they allegedly committed the crimes information so they can start defending themselves. Somebody asked a question earlier about that I feel like we were in a losing battle against the church. And I have to say, based on what you just said, yes, that was my initial reaction. As I said, we've lost another one. That was 
I just dropped in. And that's what I wanted to say when I was reading through this. We dropped in and felt just, okay, it's happening again. We're getting screwed one more time by the church. They have the report. We don't, you don't even have to fight it. And but when the survivors are discouraged, then it's time for their lawyers to cheer them on. Exactly. And that's what we that's what we do. And the survivors are often discouraged because they have not been heard often since they were children. The numbers of stories of little boys going into the confessional and confessing to the priest something he thought he should be ashamed of and being thrown out of the confessional, being called a liar. Not once. This, this, this is, so where did they turn? There are many discouraging days in this journey, but it, it, failure is not an option, as they say. Yes. For all of us, our society cannot accept this. Would you also want to, um, the archdiocese to stop paying these to you as well for these anonymous folks to give up? If they say what they mean, that they don't, that they don't want to influence this process, that they should back off completely. Let's vote. <laughs> we, I, I think there's a tension. Obviously, people are entitled to legal defense. I personally, I think we agree that the archdiocese should not be supporting it on the one hand. When they're advocating, they're saying that they don't have a problem with public disclosure, but then they're, you know, they're, they're helping the people who are trying to prevent the public disclosure, even though, as Suzanne said, the attorney general has afforded protections and made certain redactions so that information is going to be, is not all the information will be public. What will be public are the names of the individuals that the attorney general found that there were credible allegations against and have named as perpetrators. So we don't believe that the archdiocese should be supporting any endeavor to further silence the survivors who cooperated in this investigation with a lot of personal pain that was entailed in having to relive their memories and not having access now to the product that was the fruit of this investigation while the archdiocese apparently has has had it for weeks it's just manifestly unjust and perhaps it goes without saying but we paid for this report you, you all paid for this report these are maryland tax dollars Right, that that came forward, that, that funded the people who did this investigation, who printed it, who copied it, who worked on it. We are entitled to see it, just as anybody else should be entitled to see something that's publicly publicly funded and available. With respect to Jerry Meeker, one thing that's report out to hold people accountable to your point, um, getting in on that when you're thinking about where we are as a country, what the acceptance or lack thereof around the world when it comes to the extent for you. What is a victory for you all when it comes to changing in the archdiocese? Not only Baltimore, but over the country where we don't know what's happening right now, uh, let alone in the 60s, and thanks to a documentary on Netflix, which has, what does that, what does accountability look like? moving forward to be proactive in preventing these things from happening and calling these people out in a more transparent way. Gemma, do you Gemma, want to speak to that? How much time do we have? It's a big thing. All you got to do is wind me up. You guys know that. Can I want to say something to that. We live in a new society. We want everyone to be healed. Everyone to come forward and receive help that needs help. 
And that's why I am here today. What we need to happen, as you asked, we need a lot of education. We need parents to have really tough conversations with their little children about being alone with adults they don't know or that they're not comfortable with. And I'm a teacher, so that's a priority for me. We need to make sure the reporting process is well in place. I tell people, do not call the archdiocese. You call the attorney general's office, you call 911, you get yourself an attorney and a therapist. We need indictments. That's going to speak volumes because some of, the, some of these people are still living. These perpetrators, there are 13 priests that are still living who abuse children. And I've talked to people who were abused when they were three years old and they remember it like it was yesterday. Movies made with them in blindfolds with teenage boys. You're, you have no idea the horror stories. So we need indictments. We need arrests. We need charges. We need convictions and we need incarcerations. And the archdiocese has said that X number of priests or clergy have been prosecuted. That's not accurate. They've been kicked out of the church or they've had their faculties removed. A few have been prosecuted. One that you know of well was Maurice Blackwell. And he appealed and got out. And then he went and shot his accuser, Dante Stokes, who's now in prison for that. So none of this makes sense. There are so many things that have to happen. I think that right now to make sure the accountability happens with names, trials, places, I don't drive. I live three hours away. You don't think I'm going to get one of you to come and get me so I can sit in on all those trials? I will be in the first row championing my friends. So the list is very long about what will make a difference. But this first step that we're all making with this wonderful team, legal team, is critical to making that begin. The other thing, as I alluded to, I didn't, I said it right to him. We need to have religious leaders who have integrity. And I'm so sick of the word transparency, but we're talking real transparency. And do you think that this could be the first crack at what appears to be, at least from my view, as a media member and this person who also went to Catholic school, this kind of this hard, big structure that is the archdiocese and they'll take care of it and we're going to keep this things sacred. And it really causes this power struggle between religion and real morality and its consequences. Do you feel that being the diamond to for the belief in this report and other people mentioned it's not that perfect that Faith and religion are two different things, okay? I was raised Catholic. I had nuns for 12 years. I don't practice my Catholic faith, but I sit on the beach every day and I look at the sky and nobody can explain that. Science can't explain the sky. That's enough for me. Faith and religion are totally separate. I do believe that this is a really critical move. We've had some. The Netflix series was the first big stab at that. And as I said before, this press conference, I'm making an audio recording of it. It's going to go viral in all seven continents, including Antarctica by midnight. So the archdiocese has no idea what they're up against because we seriously have the world on our side. We are not going anywhere. We are going to fight this to the end. And I just turned 70. And you know what? If this is how I spend the last quarter of my life, I am honored to do it. All right, so we're going to have one last statement. So I, 
Uh, David, and then we'll wrap up. I'd like to address what you said on a national level. So on a national level, I think what we need are active change in all of the laws surrounding child sexual abuse. We have statute of limitations. We have statute of limitations in Maryland 20 years ago, and most of these people are covered by that, right? There's no three years. They had three years. You think a child can come forward? We have to change the statute of limitations that are take all the way across the country. We need attorney general investigations, not into not just into the Catholic Church, but into all institutions. We know the Boy Scouts did it, right? So we need to have, and I would like to see investigation in like they've done in several other countries like Australia, Ireland, and Germany, where, where they've done a national investigation into institutional child sexual abuse. And those are the kinds of things on a national level that need to be done. That's what that would look like. All right. We'd like to thank you all for coming. We're going to hand out a press release that we have. Mary Beth will we'll give you a copy of the way out. Certainly, if you have any questions, you can direct them to me or any one of the returning members here. We thank you for your time today. Thank you for coming. I'm looking forward to seeing you. Thank you. Thank you for coming. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.